When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome back to Latter Day Takes. Uh, sorry for the afternoon drop. I just got caught up a little bit with some stuff last night, but um, still wanted to drop something today. And I think it'll be interesting to most of you, hopefully, and hopefully not too controversial, but we'll see. You never know. Um, I think at the end of the day, most people know, like, my intentions really are pure. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to stir the pot. This is just kind of my thoughts. I think there's a lot of interesting aspects of society in general and culture. And a lot of these times, it's just questions that. I think are important to ask. I'm not necessarily saying I have a solution or whatever. I'm certainly not trying to change people's opinions, but I am trying to at least offer up more questions that could potentially help people process kind of what's going on, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, on today's episode, I, I start off kind of the first little bit doing a like top five favorite father representations in the Book of Mormon. And I will say right now, my measurement is extremely arbitrary. I get into that a little bit. And you'll see what it is, but it's essentially, I, I measure it off of how I like how the sun's turned out. So I, I kind of highlight kind of Alma the Younger as opposed to Alma the Elder, because Alma the Younger's sons were all like solid three guys. I mean, Corianton, there was a little thing there, but anyway, it was, I, I talk about that. But um, it's very, very arbitrary. I admit that. Very arbitrary. And it's no reflection on the fact that if, if a son had a, if the dad had a, a son that fell away, it wasn't necessarily a reflection directly on that father. Not necessarily, right? So I want to make that clear, by the way. I didn't make that fully clear in the middle of the podcast. Anyway, from there, I go into this study that was released that claims that one in five uh, members of the church in Generation Z identify as LGBTQ+, and uh, the majority of those being bisexual. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. I go into kind of what the study uh, took into in terms of sample and stuff like that. But um, then I go into this idea of why we're seeing this uptick potentially and that's where i may get a little bit controversial but i really am not intending to be offensive offensive towards anyone regardless outside of that uh i end with uh this idea that i have that these mormon radicals that exist within the church rules for mormon radicals is what i'm referring to it as it's nothing that i've gone into in depth but i was just kind of throwing out some ideas if anybody has any ideas or feedback as always Give me something to go off of. I'm always appreciative of it, so please help me out here. Hope you all are having a great week, and I hope you all are getting gearing up for a great weekend. It was raining today in Utah, and that's awesome. So we love that. Uh, I guess praying for rain has been working out after all. Anyway, love you all. Have a great weekend. Mormons are my favorite. They're my favorite. Yeah, okay. They're absolutely yeah. my favorite. All Mormons are nutty Mormons. Mormons are the nicest cult of all time beautiful and these mormons are so nice everybody's so nice <laughs> everybody's so nice in utah just being a mormon's nutty mormons are really nice people totally nice they are the yeah. best cult my favorite religion is mormons they're the nicest people shout out to the latter-day saints all right so to kind of start us out on this episode um i wanted to actually highlight something that i saw on twitter that I really liked earlier uh, this week. I think it was probably on Father's Day. That would make the most sense, at least. Um, 
which was somebody kind of writing down a list of their favorite fathers, uh, like top five or something like that from the Book of Mormon. I thought it was kind of a cool idea. Kind of highlight that for Father's Day. So obviously we're after Father's Day, but um, something that resonated from, with me for some reason. So I wanted to actually give kind of my own list that I made. So we'll just go through that somewhat quickly, kind of give some explanations. And I'd be curious to hear uh, who else is, has a, uh, a list of um, favorite fathers, so to speak, at the Book of Mormon. Anyway, I am kind of ranking them here. So I'll start it off at number five. I'm actually going to give it to Jacob, who was the father of Enos. Now let me go back a little bit and talk about kind of the measurement that I'm going off of. This is my own, obviously, personal and biased preference, which is that I like to look at how good their sons seemingly turned out, their children, so to speak. Um, and by that, I mean kind of the sons that, like, say, for example, looking at how Nephi turned out as a result of being fathered by Lehi. That's, that's essentially the measurement that I'm going off of. So using that as my measurement tool, so to speak, um, I like Jacob coming in at number five. Um, I think it's kind of interesting that we go from Lehi to Nephi. So Lehi and then Nephi, his son, and then Jacob, Nephi's younger brother, and then to Enos, his son. So it's not like a direct line of father, son, father, son, father, son, all that stuff. Um, you see a little brother come in there, Jacob. Jacob must have led a pretty interesting life, um, being the little brother that was born in the new land um, from uh, Lehi and uh, Sarah, and um, or Sariah, excuse me. Um, and that would have been an interesting upbringing for him to kind of be brought up into the earth, into the world with like a very foreign territory to everybody, but him obviously a big believer in... Um, what his brother Nephi was teaching, and obviously his father Lehi. Um, he must have had a very close connection to Nephi. That would be my guess. And then I do like one of Jacob. What his uh, one of his um, chapters he's dedicating to kind of the infidelity that's happening among the Nephites, and he specifically says the Lamanites are actually better off than you guys are, because like because they actually stick to the idea of just having one wife and like the family, the nuclear family idea, which is really cool. Um, so anyway, that's number five, Jacob. Coming in at number four is, I'm basically going to give it to King Benjamin, but it's kind of like a Mosiah one and and also King Benjamin, because at the end result of that, you have Mosiah two, right? King Mosiah, who's like the main King Mosiah. I think we forget sometimes that there was another King Mosiah who was the grandfather of King Mosiah that we all talk about that has the sons of Mosiah and everything. And King Benjamin plays an amazing transitional piece there. I mean, he talks about, I love King Benjamin and what he talks about how it is to be a king, which essentially, if you really read his words, he says, the only thing that makes me a king is that I lead by example. And it talks about how he was working in the field right next to his people. Like there, there really was no specific relegation for somebody like King Benjamin. He did not view himself as above his own people. And I would imagine that was because he saw a lot of the examples of his own father. And I think Mosiah too was a lot like that as well, witnessing his own father, King Benjamin, always serving. Um, I think that played a big role in how they were as kings. And and specifically, what I love about King Mosiah, the son of King Benjamin, was that he took that to another level and said, you know what, it's probably better that you don't even have kings. And I thought that's pretty amazing stuff right there too, that you know, being 
being the third king, maybe even more than that, but I just know off the top of my head that it goes Mosiah 1, King Benjamin, Mosiah 2. Mosiah 2 is able to recognize that really the best case scenario is that they don't have kings and that maybe they have like are led by a ser- like a, a group of judges. And that's when the idea of judges gets introduced into the land, which is a really important aspect of the Book of Mormon that I think goes under-talked about, especially from a political standpoint, because there's nothing good about a monarchy. You know, like a, the that situation can be really, really bad because it really only takes a generation or two before things really take a turn. And you see that, uh, you witness that directly in, in the Book of Ether with uh, the Jaredites and the brother of Jared and, and Jared as well. They ask their own people when they get to their new land, they're like, who, who, who like, what do you guys, how do you guys want to do this? And they insist on having a king. And it specifically says that that was grievous to Jared and his brother. It's grievous, the idea of having a king. Anyway, this is kind of tangential, but this is all to say that Mosiah too recognizes that and he encourages his people because he asks them, he says, who would you like to be your king? And they say, one of your sons. And all the sons are like, nope, we're good. We want to go serve as missionaries. And so he's like, okay, well, how about this? Maybe we set up judges and that become our new thing. We have a chief judge and then other judges. And that kind of obviously is more like a democracy, right? It's not necessarily ruled by one person or one party per se, or who knows exactly the details of how the judges worked and if there was kind of a political affiliation there, if they specifically had judges that did not agree on everything so that way they could have some sort of checks and balances scenario that we have in a democracy today. Anyway, once again, tangential. That's why I like King Benjamin because he certainly was an amazing example for his own son and his own son took that to the next level and I really like all that. All right, coming in at number three is Alma the Younger, who, by the way, I heard this the other day, not, I mean, it was someone, it was a while ago, but Alma the Younger is not actually ever referred to as Alma the Younger in the Book of Mormon. That's a nickname we've applied to him. Anyway, um, Alma the Younger, uh, I I like him as a father because of his three sons specifically that you see and how... Um, he was as an example of them. You could say Alma the Elder um, because of who Alma the Younger became, which I hesitate to do, not to say that he wasn't a good father. Of course he was a good father. Like he fasted many days so that his son could like be transformed into the man he was, right? That was the visitation of the angel and everything like that. But um, I'm a little hesitant because I think part of the debauchery that Alma the Younger participated in at a young age was due to the fact that he had either witnessed directly his father's own apostasy or had heard whisperings here and there, rumors, you know, maybe it was after he was born that, um, or maybe it was before he was born that Alma the Elder had converted, or I guess reconverted ultimately to the gospel and became the prophet. And Alma the Younger may have had a hard time kind of compartmentalizing that in his youth and growing up and seeing that maybe his dad was somewhat of a hypocrite. That's not to say that Alma the Elder was a hypocrite. Of course he was not. In fact, he was was an amazing father to his son, but it was just somewhat of a complicated relationship, right, because of his past transgressions and things like that. But when Alma the Younger became a father, he raised three amazing sons, Helaman, Shiblon, and Corianton. And obviously we know the story of Helaman. He became the next prophet. He was also leading um, the sons of Helaman, the armies of Helaman, you know, those uh, anti-Nephi-Lehi sons or grandsons. And his example was amazing in that, and he was obviously a a big believer in his own father's words and he tried to exemplify a lot of his own father's philosophies. Shiblon and Corianton are also 
amazing examples or amazing um, reasons why I like Alma the Younger as a good father in the Book of Mormon and Shiblon. One of the one of the recent talks that I like a lot, I can't remember it off the top of my head. I should have looked this up beforehand, but I'm kind of spitballing some of this. Was a um, seventy that talk about kind of Shiblon being the underrated um, figure in the Book of Mormon because he actually has one of like the shortest chapters dedicated to him of the three sons. He has a very it's, he has one chapter and it's only like I don't know it's like twenty verses is all, and it's basically Alma the younger saying to him, "You've been a great son. Um, keep it up." right because Shivalon doesn't really do anything to be recognized and he doesn't he doesn't rebel and he's not really trying to specifically be noticed he just works hard and gets things done and and eventually becomes the record keeper which is something that was pointed out in that talk that I hadn't realized before and so that's pretty important stuff is that Shivalon actually was carrying the records Corianton fits into that as well because obviously he has the story of rebelling like leaving the ministry for Isabel um and, uh, you know, like the, the harlot and all that stuff that he did, like the sexual transgressions that went into that. But the thing that I like about that is that Corianton really listened to his father after those series of chapters and that Corianton responded extremely well because Corianton, from what we can tell and what we can gather in the Book of Mormon, was forgiven. Not just forgiven, but became a real force. And in fact, the verse in Alma that talks about Captain Moroni, if all men were on, like unto him, the very powers of hell would be shaken. Um, in the next verse, it talks about a few other people that it, like that same rule applies not just to Captain Moroni, but applies to these people as well. And Alma the Younger was listed, and all his sons were listed. And Mosiah and his sons, I believe it says, so all his sons, meaning Corianton, was in there. And so Corianton was directly compared to Captain Moroni. So that's a clear indication that he bounced back in full force and became a great man and um, really a great representative of the gospel. And so I really, really like that, that Alma the Younger became such an amazing father for them, especially, you know, he didn't start off all that well, but he certainly bounced back and um, became a great example to them. And then the next one would be, for me, number two is Mormon. Um, and that's the editor of the Book of Mormon. I think he's an amazing fatherly example, raising his son Moroni, who finishes off the Book of Mormon. And I don't have much to say about Mormon besides the fact that what he did in the Book of Mormon by editing everything was nothing short of incredible. And the narrative that he put on it was also incredible keeping the records, collating it, and then being able to kind of put down what was important in a specific set of plates for us. Love that. Mormon must have been an extremely special man. He had to have viewed Captain Moroni as a personal hero of his because he named his own son after him. And it seemed like he really tried to exemplify the example of Captain Moroni as well. Um, just so many great things about Mormon, and obviously that reflected really well when you look at Moroni and how he talks about having faith and kind of putting in his own two cents at certain times of the Book of Mormon. He doesn't talk often, but he has some moments in Ether and as well as his own book in Moroni where he really goes off on faith and um, obviously charity and talking about just other aspects of the gospel that no, no doubt were really pushed into him by his own uh, father, Mormon. So anyway, that's what I had to say about Mormon as number two. And number one is probably number one because I feel like it's kind of a rare find. It's like one of those things that you don't really recognize right away, but 
So I guess I'm kind of bragging here by talking about this one. He doesn't have a name, but the number one father in the Book of Mormon in my mind, and that's just because he's underrated. That really is it, because we don't have a, lot, a whole lot to go off of. So like I said, it's really kind of me bragging that I'm even pointing this out. So I'm sorry about that, but it is cool. And I think you'll like it. Abish's dad. So her father, right? Abish, we don't know much about her, but we do know, for one, she's actually one of three women named in the Book of Mormon's own narrative. Um, so one in six, one of six total, right? So Eve, Sarah, and Mary that are being mentioned from the Bible. But of the three that are mentioned as part of the Book of Mormon's narrative, like being in that land, Sariah, Abish, and Isabel, and Isabel the harlot that we had, I had mentioned with Corianton, and Sariah being the wife of Lehi. So not a lot of women, obviously, right? And I know there's a lot of um, feminists of the church and things like that, and critics that look at that and say that's terrible. It's such a, like, it's hegemonic masculinity at its worst in the Book of Mormon. Anyway, um, that's not my point, obviously, but there are so many great things that it says about Abish in that little moment when Ammon is preaching to Lamoni and his wife. You know, Lamoni collapses, and then Ammon grabs his wife and says, hey, like, he's not dead. He's just, like, in a deep kind of sleep a dream you know probably having a vision and at that point the wife then collapsed with Ammon and with a few other people that were around Abish does not collapse she was actually one of the servants of the queen and the reason why is because she had been converted unto the Lord for many years prior to that scenario so Abish a Lamanite had been converted and specifically and this is what it says in Alma 19 16 on an account of a remarkable vision of her father. So the reason why Abish did not faint and was around there to witness everything that had taken place and probably played a key role in all those Lamanites adopting Ammon's, well, not Ammon's gospel, Christ's gospel, but Ammon's becoming the missionary to them is because she had acted as a key witness in that moment and she had not fainted she was able to kind of tell other people and say look at what i'm witnessing this is crazy this is incredible that was probably really testimony building experience not just for her but everybody else um and that all became that all came because of her own father's vision which i thought was really cool uh something that kind of goes under talked about um anyway so that's abish's father i thought that was one that i would point out so happy father's day uh post late father's day to all those out there and um just wanted to give a shout out to the some of the fathers of the Book of Mormon that has struck me in a way that certainly resonates. And uh, maybe I, I encourage anybody listening to this, if they want to give me their own list, I would love to see what they have to say. Um, we can talk about that. Um, anyway, something else I wanted to talk about today was a study that came out uh, earlier this week that was kind of this nationwide survey just that hit a lot of different demographics. But one of the revelations that they've uh, they uncovered and the claim that they made was that um, it was, I guess, before I say this, it was one of the biggest nationwide survey ever on the Latter-day Saints, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or members of that church, you know, as they have referred to as Mormons, obviously, and the nickname that we do not go by anymore. But it found that, and this is according to the study, new study, one in five Gen Z Mormons are LGBTQ plus with Bisexuality being the most popular subcategory, one in ten say they are bi. The national survey methods, and it lists specifically convenience sampling and weighting, are below. Um, and then it talks about kind of those that have used similar ways of using those methods. 
Um, it's fairly kind of what, what people would call is like, oh, it's like this big revelation of, you know, what we know now about Gen Z Mormons, which I guess Gen Z, I think, are now like the new, like the, the I don't know, it's probably like 16 to 25 year old group that we have, which by the way, like when did generations become so like, I, I feel like generations lasted a lot longer. Now we're seeing a new generation pop up like every three to five years, it seems like, so I don't know, but I think the idea of generations are even kind of out of whack anyway. I don't think it's necessarily representative of the people that you grow up around in school as much as it is kind of the families you grow up. And for example, I grew up in a family of eight kids. I'm the youngest and the oldest was born in 76. I was born in 87. So I'm clearly, you know, more on the millennial side, you know, growing up as a child in the 90s and then going into the millennium as, you know, kind of a teenager but I don't feel as much like a millennial as I do more kind of with my own family, with the with the brothers and sisters I grew up with, with that were really like 80s, like kind of Gen X types um, for whatever reason. I felt like that was more relatable in a lot of ways. Not that I don't identify myself as a millennial, but anyway, I just, there's not real clear definitions on, on how these generations even work. I think it's kind of like you finally are able to identify s- distinct differences every five to ten years between teenagers so let's give it a new generational name i don't know maybe it's more complex than that and i'm the simple-minded fool here it's definitely possible regardless the idea behind this survey is that gen z is like 20 percent of gen z even in the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints identify as lgbtq plus bisexual things like that being very popular anyway there were studies that this study specifically had some limitations and that was pointed out by a twitter handle that i wanted to give a shout out to book of mormon rhetorics what book of mormon rhetorics likes to do is they kind of highlight different scripture in the book of mormon kind of its meaning and things like that i've actually really enjoyed following their handle not very well known but i've liked what they've done um and they did point out some some key points that are some key considerations that kind of go like undis uh, under talked about so to speak and uh whoever has this handle it's anonymous handle so i don't really know them specifically but they they were saying things like your article makes often makes it sound like your findings came straight from the nation scape data set when clearly they did not there were lots of analytical decisions that you do not share with the readers this is book of mormon rhetorics going specifically not going after it wasn't an attack but it was very clearly just like stated like this is what you're ignoring it was uh the person that published the study and just pointing out specific issues kind of with the convenient sampling aspect And I think that's a really important point to hit on because convenience sample specifically is not really, uh, you can't generalize a convenience sample. That's one of the biggest critiques from convenience sampling. Uh, The problem is that that's what you see a lot in science today, right? Because most professors use their own students as subjects for what they study because that would be a convenience sample. It's what's in your environment and it's it's kind of easy to recruit it's cheap and then you can get some interesting information from there the idea is to really set up a benchmark more than anything and to kind of get an idea that what you're studying there's any merit to it right and so that's why they try and find probabilities and so convenience sampling isn't necessarily unscientific but it's not generalizable which is a huge aspect of what we're talking about here because this study by based on this study they're saying 20% 20% of Gen Z in the church is LGBTQ plus or whatever identifies that way. 
But we don't know that for sure because that's literally what a convenience sample cannot tell you. So what we do know, I guess, just from convenience sampling is that they were taking kind of more of the cheaper route of recruiting and they were taking, they were approaching people that were more readily available. So what type of person is that within the church? I don't know. I'm not saying that that is automatically going to yield higher people from the LGBTQ plus community, but it just, the big thing is that once again, once again, I said, is that it lacks generalizability. And it says that there are other papers, like there was a 2013 paper published by Bornstein, Jaeger and Putnik that identifies that. They, they go over sampling strategies. There's population-based and there's probability sampling, convenience sampling, quota sampling, and homogenous sampling. And they actually take five criteria and they try and identify like what is it that's good and what is it that's bad about these. And they say convenience sampling is a common strategy, but its scientific disadvantages appear to outweigh its practical advantages relative to population-based probability sampling. Convenience sampling is a far easier and less expensive to implement. However, unlike population-based probability sampling, convenience sampling produces estimates that lack generalizability, meaning it is not broadly applicable to any identifiable target population or subpopulations, except for the sample studied. So what we do know is that the people that they studied, one in five of them are LGBTQ plus that are in the church, but it cannot specifically um, detect differences among sociodemographic subgroups and include noise due to sociodemographic variation that cannot be controlled or accounted for. So just once again, we don't know for sure how it broadly applies. And that's kind of, there was some, it seems like there's some smoke screen set up, as Book of Mormon Rhetorics point out, to, to kind of deter people from looking a little bit deeper in how they got their sample. But anyway, I, there's just some interesting things that I thought were of note that ha that were problematic with that study in and of itself. But here's another thing that I want to bring up. And that's not that, oh, that study must be bogus. So one in five are not identifying that way within the church. Um, even then, what like, so what is it then? One in 10, 10% as opposed to 20%. I mean, I would say that it's worth acknowledging that whether or not the survey is actually generalizable, which it's technically it is not generalizable, but regardless, it is that population is growing. The LGBT community is growing within the church. There's no question about that. And that begs an interesting question. And this is what I also wanted to talk about a little bit more was that are we seeing trends grow because there seems to be a kind of currency, so to speak, by adopting this way of life? Less, you know, the LGBTQ way of life, which I know, by the way, that flies in the face of the idea that they're born this way, but I have more on that in a little bit. So if they were born this way, then what's with the sudden uptick of all of a sudden we're seeing this huge growth spurt of the LGBT community, um, not just within the church, but in general? Has genetics become so progressive that like it, in a record pace that all of a sudden like just genetically, we're seeing more people uh, be born as LGBTQ+. Or is this something that we're now noticing, at, but has always been, it's it's something that's always been around, but we're just now noticing in widespread acceptance is, is what is shining a light on, on some of these numbers, maybe? I don't know. I don't know the answer to these questions, um, but I, do, I don't think they're necessarily unfair questions. Um, I think this brings up another really interesting aspect of, of, just kind of what we're living in today with society, which is there's actually a lot of evidence right now, and, and 
I want to I want to highlight somebody specifically that the LGBTQ plus community there actually isn't uh, a gene among them. I've, I, there are studies out there. I think Oxford School of Medicine specifically pushed a study out there that says there aren't genet- There's not a gay gene per se, or at least not one that they've found yet. But there are proclivities towards LGBTQ plus activities. I don't know how you'd want to say that, but anyway proclivities which is an interesting way of putting that because that basically means that like our societal norms dictate what a proclivity is anyway you know if what if something seems more akin to being part of that community then it must be a proclivity towards being in that lifestyle so that in in and of itself is interesting but regardless dr lisa diamond who's actually a a professor at the university of utah at least last i checked she had a ted talk about this and she actually says she's so she is a lesbian activist an avowed lesbian activist. And she says, you know, viewing sexuality as two types, heterosexual, homosexual, or even if you're going to identify yourself as bisexual or transsexual is, is essentially limiting. She says it's rigid and unchangeable and it no longer applies. Um, they're kind of making the argument that the idea of that being born this way is over. Like it shouldn't be a thing because it's, it, it, it puts limitations on those that want to have more of a fluid sexuality. And that's their argument is that sexuality is fluid and that sexuality is not limited to either being born homosexual or heterosexual. It's kind of funny. They, they say the born this way thing is not a thing, but for different reasons than what others may say, like that are more religious. Regardless, it's kind of funny that they're arguing the same thing, but just from different standpoints. Um, and let me bring in Dr. Lisa Diamond, a clip that I got from one of her TED Talks that actually specifically talks about this. going to warn you now, this clip is not loud, so make sure you're turning it up to here. I tried to get a louder clip. wasn't possible. Anyway, just turn it up for this and then turn it back down because my volume is pretty loud. Anyway, sorry, you've been warned. Get ready, it's quiet, turn it up, then turn it down. Here you go. But there are three problems with the born that way argument. First, it's not scientifically accurate. Second, it's not legally necessary. But third, and most important, it's actually unjust. And it's time to retire that argument for LGBT equality. So going off of Dr. Lisa Diamond's own analysis of this, I think then we can say, we can start to question why the sudden uptick, you know, why, like Dr. Lisa Diamond is saying that sexuality should be fluid and that uh, she's basing this off of her own study where she actually did a longitudinal study of a hundred women. She talks about this in that same TED talk that she identified these women, like they had distinct categories that they identified themselves in. There was like, there was lesbians, there were heterosexual women, and there were like bisexual women. And she said over time, what she saw is that some of the lesbians actually entered into heterosexual relationships, as well as some of the heterosexual women that were in the study went into lesbian relationships. Her idea behind that being that there was very fluid, they were doing what they want, and that the bisexuals were kind of not necessarily identifying themselves as strictly bisexual, but maybe they felt strictly homosexual at one point or strictly heterosexual at another point. Anyway, her idea behind that is that it is fluid, obviously, and that's that's her argument. 
So if that's the case, then I think it's fair to question what is with this uptick. And I, and I don't think that's something we can necessarily just look to that study that was mentioned where one in five Gen Z members of the church are actually LGBT part of like identifies LGBTQ plus. Um, I think it's, I don't think we can ignore that. I think there is probably a rising trend and I think their church is no exception to that. So I think why is that uptick taking place? And I think that becomes a fair question when you incorporate Dr. Diamond's own philosophy here, which is that sexuality should be fluid. And so if it is fluid, then it becomes more acceptable. And, or sorry, she's trying to make sexual fluidity more acceptable. So from there, these kids in the rising generation are starting to see this as not just acceptable, but even trendy in some respects. And once again, the church is no exception to that. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily offering a solution here or even an analysis. I don't know. But I think it's a fair question regardless to bring up that we're starting to see this uptick. And I don't know why necessarily. I don't necessarily think it's because, like I'd mentioned, that this gay gene is more prevalent or whatever gene comes from the LGBTQ plus community and whatever that is. I don't think it necessarily is more prevalent. Um, I don't think it's also because we've just made it more acceptable and so that way people feel more comfortable coming out like i don't think these numbers have always existed in communities but i could be wrong about that as well so if it is the fact that it's more trendy and more acceptable you get things like the love loud festival um where you get celebrities touting it supporting it big companies touting it supporting it pushing it i mean i just saw today netflix is releasing a animated um series of all gay superheroes. I'm not saying that is a bad thing by any means, but it certainly goes to show kind of how trendy it is. And these are malleable minds. These are these are younger kids, this younger generation. And so if they view this as a currency, then yeah, you're going to see more kids hopping onto that bandwagon. I don't want to call it, maybe not call it a bandwagon, but hopping onto that trend for now. And we'll see. Now, I mean, this comes from somebody that has close gay friends and that have been very open about their sexuality and I'm not sitting here going to say they like have a choice specifically to choose that lifestyle I think that's something that they've dealt with their whole lives and there have been real attractions and they felt like they were definitely homosexual and not heterosexual and and I believe that and and it specifically came at a time when it wasn't necessarily acceptable when it was really hard to come out but we're not seeing that anymore it's really not hard to come out anymore at least in most cases that is there's obvious exceptions to that there are certain communities that are much less accepting still and you see a lot of that in the church specifically in specific families where these kids growing up feel like they might be homosexual or whatever else on that on the lgbt spectrum um and they don't want to come out and tell their parents about it their brothers and sisters or their friends even and i am i'm sure that's extremely difficult but by and large we're not really seeing that so much anymore is what i mean by that where when you come out openly to the public it's i would argue it's definitely more celebrated than it is castigated quite frankly and my own personal friends um that when they did come out it was not when it was a popular time to come out so i would never make that accusation on them saying like oh you're only doing it because it's cool or whatever not a chance like this is like very real their lifestyle and who am i to take anything away from that but it's just i'm just trying to present the interesting questions behind it
because I do think these questions are interesting. And like I said, I'm sorry I don't have a solution, but it's something, it's a discussion worth having nonetheless. Anyway, those are my thoughts on that. To close it out today, I really only wanted to talk about one pretty quick thing, which was this idea that came to me not too long ago. I mean, it's not really an original idea because the what, what came to mind was this idea that Saul Alinsky proposed. He's, he was, you know, a real Marxist type, and he spouted out the idea of rules for radicals, which is that if you're really trying to stay, like, change a system, you really can't try and change the system from the outside. You actually have to infiltrate the system from the inside and change it from the inside. And that was, that's what he called like kind of a radical, right? People that go into the government to basically overthrow the government or change it. And so that's what we're seeing a lot now politically. There's no question about that. Like you see all different types politically that are currently trying to overhaul some of the basic tenets of what this country was founded upon. That's not news. Um, Saul Alinsky in his book had even uh, kind of dedicated kind of partly to the, the devil. He, he had said like, this goes out to all the radicals um, Satan, um, being among the original radical, right? The idea of the man that rebelled against God himself kind of thing. Anyway, so that's why people say like Saul Alinsky was a terrible person dedicating his book to Satan, which he certainly does dedicate his book to Satan to a degree, but it's not like this full on, like, I love Satan. This book is for him type of thing, but he calls out Satan in a way that is definitely on a positive side. So it was definitely weird and not really something that I would ever do. Certainly. Um, but anyway, I bring this up because we're starting to see this a lot in the church, too. We're seeing guys like Calvin Burke on Twitter who are hell-bent on changing the basic doctrines of the church. And you see that a lot in other ways, too, with kind of the, the progressive Mormons on Twitter who really are trying to stir the pot a lot because they really just want to overhaul a lot of the basic doctrine and principles that the church were founded upon. I just have a few questions for them, and this is something I'm going to be continually exploring. I mean, it's basically what I want to call it as rules for Mormon radicals, because I want to hear what these people like about the church. They don't really ever talk about that. They only talk about what they don't like. And I'd say a big significant difference between people that are part of that group, the progressive Mormons, versus those that are not, and kind of just more members of the church, is that one side believes that the church owes them something for being a member of it. You hear that a lot. Like, the church owes me this for being single and older, and it's so hard as it is, but, you know, like they get an automatic ticket to the celestial kingdom or something like that. Whereas the other group says, I don't go to church because they owe me something, and I don't feel like the church owes me something for attending it or being a member of it. I go to church because I get so much out of it. I go to church because I need that spiritual uh, positivity in my life, and I need that direction and that love and that guidance. So I want to know what they think is wrong, period. Not just in the church. They've pointed that out time and time again, what they think is wrong with the church. But I want to know what they think is wrong, just period. Like, what constitutes sin in their eyes? Like, I'd love to ask that to Calvin or, like, Rosemary Card, who's very big into that as well. What do you guys believe is, like, a bad way to live and that the church should kind of draw lines against? Because right now it doesn't seem like they want the church drawing any lines. They spend most of their time condemning behaviors of their own church to which they belong, but don't spend any time condemning the same sin that the church condemns. So I don't know. I mean, these are just questions that are coming to mind initially because I feel like that is part of the philosophy among Mormon radicals, which is basically just go after your own church. 
and don't really define any clear lines about what what the church should be. Like like they talk about what the church shouldn't be and how they should be more accepting, but they don't say how are you at church? Like what are the doctrinal lines that you should maintain and keep forever? Because I feel like most of these people just at the end of the day just want to stir the pot. They don't actually have a specific utopia for the church in mind. They just want to be different and they just want to be noticed. Anyway, that's it, y'all. Signing off. Have a good one. Falling so madly There must have been magic in the valley And a rhythm in the night Cause I could almost see it Did you fade right out of you? If it takes time, I